Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Farah Dowdy. And today's story starts with a mystery that began to unravel in Labette County, Kansas in the spring of 1873. A Colonel Ed York was searching for his brother, Dr. William York, who'd vanished without a trace in early March of that year. So when he went missing, according to an article by David McCormick in Wild West, the doctor had been looking into another disappearance, that of a man named George Lonker and his young daughter. Dr. York had apparently sold Lonker a wagon and a team that had later turned up inexplicably deserted. Neither Lonker nor his daughter were anywhere to be found near this team and wagon. So it was while he was on his way back from IDing this team and wagon in Fort Scott, Kansas, that Dr. York disappeared. Colonel Ed York did have a little bit to go off of, though, while he was looking for his brother. People had supposedly spotted Dr. York on his way home, riding along this road, the Osage Mission Road. And it was somewhere along that road, which connected Fort Scott with Independence, Kansas, that his trail ended. And somewhere, in fact, right around the home slash inn that was run by a family called the Benders. And interestingly, several others, anywhere from 10 to 20 people, had mysteriously disappeared in this general vicinity near the township of Cherryvale during the years spanning from 1871 to 1873. And in many cases, family members and other interested parties had traced the missing person's progress from town to town. And then, as with the case of York, their trails just vanished right around this spot. So it was clear that something was going on here in northwest Labette County. And residents of the area were pretty freaked out about it. Understandably. As you would be. So in this episode, we're going to find out what was the deal with all of these missing people. Why were they disappearing? And what did that family that we mentioned, the Benders, have to do with it all? So to answer these questions, we're going to have to rewind a little bit to about 1870 when the Bender family first showed up in this area. The exact circumstances of their arrival are somewhat up for debate, as a few points in this story are. According to Mike Mayo's book, American Murder, they arrived in Cherry Vale in the company of a small cult of spiritualists. And if you remember from our episode on the Fox sisters last year, spiritualists basically believe that people who have physically died continue to exist in kind of a spirit world and that they can continue to communicate with us in the material world, usually through special people called mediums. So the rest of the spiritualist cult moved on, but the benders stayed where they were. The area held some attraction at this time for lots of people, white settlers at least, who wanted to put down roots. The Osage Indians who'd once lived in the area had been relocated to Indian territory in present-day Oklahoma after the Civil War, and homesteaders were granted parcels of land. So when the Benders arrived, they claimed about 160 acres of land right around the Osage Mission Road, also known as the Osage Trail, which connected, as we mentioned, Fort Scott to Independence, and was about five miles from Cherryvale, which was the nearest town. So they built a small house there, basically a cabin right near the road, which was very well traveled. And 
understandably, they got into the uh, the business of tourism, I guess you would say. They divided their home into two separate areas by hanging a piece of canvas as a partition. And on one side of that partition, the family lived. On the other side, which was the front of the house, they ran an inn-slash-grocery store. And it's unclear whether their establishment had a specific name, but they did put a sign outside that said grocery. So if you were traveling along this heavily traveled trail, you would know the Benders was a place where you could refuel and maybe even spend the night. There were four members of the Bender family. Pa, who was also John Sr., Ma, John Jr., and Kate, and they were said to be German immigrants. So we need to tell you a little bit about all these characters because it's sort of essential to getting an idea of what's going on in the story and their interesting characters in This is our right. character study Yes. <laughs> so John Bender Sr. was about 60 years old, and by all accounts, he was a pretty surly, unpleasant guy. Ma Bender was said to be somewhere in the same age range as Pa, but there's still some debate over the exact number. Uh, generally, people think she was between between 50 and 60 years old. She was also heavyset and bad-natured and unfriendly. But maybe she was unfriendly because nobody really knew her name. I mean, that's one of the <laughs> things that sort ma. of... She was just Ma. That was one of the interesting things about the story is that there's never a name in any of the sources listed for her. She's just Ma. So John Jr., however, we do know his name, sort of at least. He was about 25 years old, and he came off somewhat nicer than both Ma and Pa, but he apparently had a nervous giggle that went along with just about everything that came out of his mouth. So this made people believe that he was somewhat simple-minded. Probably adds to the creepy reputation around town, too. Um, In general, these three benders made neighbors, and anyone in the general community who encountered them not really want to come around and visit too much, not go get your groceries at the bender's place. But Kate was a different story. She was a couple years younger than John Jr., and by most accounts, she was very attractive. She was an auburn-haired beauty, and she was also outgoing and talkative. So she also had a side career that was separate from her family's grocery store in business. She marketed herself as a healer and a spiritualist and called herself Professor Miss Kate Bender. And she would travel around to different towns leading public seances and healings and spiritual performances, all according to uh, Mayo's book. And she was quite a hit. She was. She also offered private seances back at the Bender home so people could come there and visit her, too. And so if you didn't go for groceries, maybe you would go for a yeah, seance. Yeah, maybe you don't want groceries, but if you've seen her act and you think she's pretty cool, maybe you want to come get a private session from Kate at her house. So it was an odd family, even if you took it at face value, as we've described it here. But it's also worth noting that a lot of people believed that they weren't even all related to each other. There were different sources give us sort of different scenarios on this, but some say that John Jr. and Kate were actually a couple rather than brother and sister. Others say that they were half brother and sister and that John was actually Ma's son from a previous marriage and that his last name wasn't Bender at all, but it was actually Gebhardt. Still, other sources say that all four of these people might have been completely unrelated. So not Ma and Pa at all. Nope, not a bit. Maybe just a clan that came together. Regardless, the foursome lived as a family in 
these early years of the 1870s. And in general, people who lived relatively nearby and knew them, or at least knew of them, really didn't want anything to do with them at all, because as we mentioned, they weren't very friendly. They weren't going to go over for dinner and ask how they were actually related. No, they weren't going to hang out and get to know their past. And so the benders in their place just generally creeped a lot of people out too. I mean, I think that probably their personalities had something to do with it, but People also mentioned just kind of having a bad feeling there. So because of that area feeling about their business, they really had to rely on people who were just traveling along the Osage Trail, people who didn't know their reputation. And they were pretty far from any big town, and even Cherryvale wasn't exactly close. So according to Wayne Lee's book, Deadly Days in Kansas, they really did attract a lot of visitors this way. And people who lived in the area, though, probably didn't have much of an idea about what was going on with the business. So despite this this bustling business of, of visitors and travelers, people who lived in the area probably didn't have much of an idea about what was going on with the business, how it was running. Uh, Lee related just a few instances in which people might have gotten an inkling that weird stuff was going on at the Bender place, but no real strong suspicion. Yeah, as an example, Lee brings up a woman who was kind of thought of as the local crazy lady, and her name was Hessler. She was a spirit spiritualism devotee, and for that reason, pretty drawn to Kate Bender, as you might imagine. According to Lee, one night, Hessler went over to the Bender's place wanting a seance, but Kate just wasn't in the mood to do one. But still, Hessler said things went okay until about sundown when the family started all of a sudden acting very odd. They started drawing pictures of men on the walls and threw knives at those pictures. Then Kate told Hessler that the spirits were moving her to kill She went toward Hessler with this weird, scary look on her face and said that the spirits were moving her to, quote, kill you, kill you now, at which point Hessler ran home as fast as she could. She just got out of there. So on the face, that seems like it would be a huge warning sign and and a threat to murder or something. And it would have been cause for concern when Hessler related this story to other people, especially since at this point, people were already aware of some unexplained disappearances in the area. But since we already noted that um, Hessler was considered a local eccentric, people just wrote it off. She must have imagined this or something weird went down between two sets of weird people. Another story, though, involved a priest who was traveling along the Osage Trail and stopping in at the Benders on a stormy night. He also ended up finding an excuse to hightail it out of the Benders' place, out of their house. But his reasons for doing so had more to do with just a general bad feeling about the situation. He's one of those people we talked about in the H.H. Holmes episode, or or rather the opposite of, of those people. Yeah, follow your gut, right? He followed it. So even though people who were living around this area were generally alarmed about the people who were vanishing around there between 1871 and 1873, there wasn't really any particular suspicion thrown on the benders at this time. Basically, Everyone in the Osage Township was under suspicion. Cozy little town, right? Right. <laughs> Until Dr. York's case came up, the one that we mentioned in the intro. He disappeared somewhere along the Osage Trail on March 9th, 1873. And his brother Ed, in his subsequent search in late March, early April of that year, traced Dr. York's movements along the road and, according to McCormick's article, met several people along the way who said that they had seen his brother. They had seen the doctor on his 
trip back toward his own home. At least one person recalled that Dr. York had said that he planned to stop at the Benders Inn on the way home, too. So one thing to note here, it's kind of up for debate why Dr. York would have stopped at the Benders Inn, because he did live relatively nearby. McCormick suggests a couple possibilities. One was that he was just hungry, wanted to stop at that grocery store. But the other possibility, and McCormick thinks that this is the more likely one, Maybe while looking into the longer disappearance, he started to get suspicious of the benders. Maybe he even confronted them about those suspicions, and that's why he was there. At any rate, Ed York decided to stop in at the Benders and inquire about his brother. Makes sense, right? It's the last place last that you place heard he was going to go. Him, Accounts differ, though, on what exactly they told him when he got there. But Kate is said to have been really friendly in general and offered to contact the spirit world to try to help him figure out what happened to his brother. Nice offer there. <laughs> but some sources also say that the Benders, perhaps specifically John Jr., suggested that Dr. York might have been attacked on the road by Indian or outlaws, like maybe even Jesse James. There he is again. Ultimately, it seems that they denied any possibility that Dr. York had come to their inn for any length of time. You know, he didn't stay there. He didn't have a meal there. Although Lee suggests that Kate told Ed York that his brother had watered his horse there and moved on. So we did did see him, but he didn't stick around. That's probably why, you know... We've been mentioned to you, but he wasn't here for for any length of time. So Ed didn't make that much progress at the Benders, but news of his search and his this latest disappearance seemed to be the final straw for the surrounding Osage community who was wondering who is the murderer among us. And as we mentioned, pretty much everyone in the township was under suspicion at this point. And not only were they scared, not only were they concerned, they probably didn't like people from other areas looking at them like possible suspects. So finally, the locals decided to gather for a meeting at the Harmony Grove Schoolhouse. And according to Mayo, there were about 75 people in attendance, including the Ben John Sr., John Jr., and during the meeting, the group as a whole decided to search every single farm and structure in the community to just squash any possible rumor. So if there is a murderer, we'll find him. If it's not our community, we can finally tell all these people stopping by, it's not one of us, look elsewhere. Just make sure that the culprit wasn't any one of them. And depending on what source you look at, anywhere from a couple days to a couple weeks after this decision, the entire Bender family just up and vanished. And according to McCormick's article, a neighbor passed by the farm, noticed they were gone, but they had just really disappeared into the wind. They left all their livestock there unattended, without food and water, and in pretty bad shape. So they hadn't made any preparations. They were just gone. And the poor treatment of those animals really riled up a lot of locals, but some suspected that something even more serious was going on here. Why has nobody seen them since we have this meeting? Why did they just suddenly up and leave? So Osage Township trustee Leroy Dick went to check out the situation. He went over to their place. And on May 5th, 1873, he broke into the Bender cabin, broke the lock off their door, and went into the cellar. While in there, he noticed that there was this terrible smell, basically the odor of death, a weird trap door also that led to the kitchen, and the cellar had some blood stains around it. 
So Dick came back the next day with a full-on search party. I think it was initially about 50 people or so, and then it grew. And they had shovels and plows and stuff in tow. And they didn't find any bodies in the house. I think they tried to check under the cellar floor. But they did find a couple of other weird things, like three sledgehammers and an eight-day clock that concealed a knife. And Ed York, who had been searching for his brother, is said to have found a pair of eyeglasses in the house that matched his brother's glasses. So after the search of the house didn't turn up anything except these sledgehammers and these other items, they started to search the rest of the property and came up empty until Ed noticed some mounded dirt in the orchard. And they realized that this must be graves. And the first one that they dug up revealed the body of Dr. York, Ed's brother. And the body was decomposing badly, but he could still make out the face once they cleaned it off. The exact number of the bodies found on the property varies depending on what source you look at, but it's generally said to be anywhere from 9 to 12 different people. And the people that Dr. York had been searching for which was Lonker and his daughter, they were buried in the spot also. But the most horrifying part, at least to me, was that this little girl who was said to be five to eight years old, they thought that she had been buried alive because she didn't have wounds, that she didn't have the same wounds that the other victims had had. And she appeared to have been crushed under the weight of her dad's dead body. So she was just kind of thrown in there and the body was sort of thrown on top of her. And that was the way that she passed away. Some other unidentified dismembered body parts were found in the area, as well as the other bodies of several men, and they were believed to be victims of the same killers. And of course, those suspected killers were the benders because their bodies weren't found on the property anywhere, and they had obviously left in such a hurry. So it's unclear how many people they killed there in that two-year span, but some estimates range over 20. So most of the victims who were found, besides the little girl Deplina mentioned, appear to have been killed in the very same way. And that's probably why most sources do agree that the Benders had this same murderous strategy. And as with a lot of other serial killer stories that we've looked at or discussed in the past, the motivation here appears to have been money. But according to Lee, the Benders in general were very careful to target non-locals. And some sources even suggest that's why they placed their cabin where it was in the first place, because they knew that they'd have a lot of travelers passing through, stopping in at their inn, and because there wasn't really another option. Most sources also credit Kate Bender as the brains behind the operation. She'd chat up the travelers, maybe flirt with them, and try to determine who was well-heeled enough to be worth killing. We mentioned that curtain that divided the room in their cabin. The prisoner would typically be seated with his back to it at the table in the kitchen. Ma would cook up some food while Kate did the talking, kind of entertain their guest. Leaning back against the curtain, as a guest often would, would create sort of an outline of the visitor's head. And this was the perfect target, apparently, for a paw bender to hit the person with a sledgehammer, which is how the initial blow and probably often the fatal blow was dealt. From there, they would steal the traveler's money, partially strip them down, and especially if it were daylight outside or if they were suspecting that another traveler might be showing up soon, they would dump the victim into the cellar very quickly through that trap door in the kitchen that we had mentioned. The final step of these trademark kills was slitting the victim's throat, which was an act that Lee and other sources say was typically performed by Kate, although I'm not really sure how they know that, I have to be honest. Yeah, how they knew it was Kate? 
Yeah, I'm not sure how they know that for sure, but a lot of sources say that it probably was her that did the throat slitting. In the night, though, when no one was around, they would take the bodies out and bury them in the orchard. And some tend to question whether or not money was always the motivator for them, because According to McCormick, some estimates put the money they made off of the victims at about $5,000, but some of their victims didn't seem to have much more than pocket change on them when they were killed. And I mean, there's always a chance that they didn't know. Maybe they killed them and then found yeah. out, oh, this guy really doesn't have any money. But People are killed today for $5, so I don't that's know. That's true. But McCormick also suggests that this could have simply have been bloodlust, so that might have been part of it. And we should mention that part of the reason that... York's situation was different. I mean, they hadn't been caught at all. They'd kind of stuck to this, we're only attacking lonely travelers thing. But they didn't realize, or at least some sources suggest that they didn't realize that York was from nearby. And his that's family why. could easily follow up and yes. check out what happened. And his brother turned out to be very tenacious in searching for him. And they probably weren't expecting that. So... After the bodies were found, there was this kind of madness that commenced in which everybody was pointing fingers, trying to find somebody who was around to blame, because the Benders, of course, were just out of town. Uh, McCormick actually compares it to the Salem witch trials. And a neighbor of the Benders named Brockman, who was also German, was suspected of knowing something about their activities or their whereabouts. He was hanged and revived several times as people tried to get info out of him. Apparently, though, he had nothing to tell after this torture treatment. Yeah, it's kind of terrible. They would just, they strung him up and they would just hang him every time they were trying to get information out of him and then sort of let him down. He would be unconscious a couple of times. Um, really brutal. But the house, interestingly, was also basically looted after this. The story was all over the papers and thousands of people reportedly came to take what McCormick calls, quote, macabre souvenirs from the property. Yuck. Yeah, to each his own in the souvenir department, I guess. But he notes that on June 25th, 1873, a Kansas paper called The Headlight ran a report that said, quote, the whole of the house, excepting the heavy framing timbers on the Bender farm, and even the few trees have been carried away by the relic hunters. And then the newspaper later addressed the family's escape by saying, quote, the murderers themselves are probably in the middle of China by this time and will never be heard from. Well, and that's the real mystery of this story, because to this day, no one knows what happened to the benders. Their wagon was found abandoned. They were sighted getting on a train. Some people say that they split up. Ma and Pa went one way. Kate and John Jr. went another. For years afterwards, as you could imagine, there were sightings, there were arrests, even a promising one in Michigan in 1889. But nothing ever stuck. Nothing was ever proven. Nobody knew what had happened to the Benders. There's even a legend that they were all murdered by a vigilante group from the Osage Township area uh, who killed them, took their money, and never spoke of it again, basically. Like, they had gone out right after they discovered the bodies, managed to find them, kill them, and just sort of kept it to themselves. But there's no proof of this either. So the whole thing, like you said, is still a mystery. But present-day Cherryvale Museum still displays some of the memorabilia that was found in the house. Some of the, the stuff house. that didn't get taken some away. Some of the, the stuff hunters. that didn't get taken away. Um, yeah, I think from that initial search, some of the things were preserved. So you can still kind of go and check this out. And Do they have the three speculate. sledgehammers? I think they have the sledgehammers and maybe the eight-day clock and the knife. Yikes. Yeah. Three sledgehammers. 
Well, I guess if you do that much a killing, brisk, brisk business murders. <laughs> it is. Um, it's interesting though. Even with three sledgehammers, their approach was is so succinct. It's so well defined in a way compared to some of the other serial killers we've covered. Like we covered the H. H. Holmes story and the he Bella was Gunna willing to story. take people up on the roof or gas them in special rooms. He was very elaborate in his strategies. Holmes was, and I think they had a formula. Yeah. So having three sledgehammers maybe isn't so complex when it comes to this sort of thing, but. It's also interesting to see the similarities between those stories and just how people react in these situations, you know, having a bad feeling, feeling a place is eerie. And uh, we finally got one, though, who acted on his bad feeling. We did. I mean, there was one in the home story, too, at least. There was the the relative of one of the wives who sort of got out of a bad situation and ended up not a victim. Didn't want to take the roof tour. Occasionally, people do follow their instinct, which is a good thing, but... People love these gruesome stories, Sarah. They do. We are always getting suggestions from you guys for serial killers and and other murderers. And we even got a a book from one of you. We did. We got The Saga of the Bloody Benders. uh, And it is a graphic novel by Rick Geary based on the Bloody Benders story. And we got that a while back, actually, from listener Steve. And I have to apologize to Steve that we've only done the story now because I think he probably sent it after we did Bell Gunnis or one of the other serial killers. And we try to put a little gap between them. As much as you guys <laughs> love these scary stories, sometimes we have to space them out. There's, there's a long incubation period for certain podcast topics, too. Lists that have been building for years and years now. Very true. But if you have any other suggestions for us, of course, we're always open to any kind of story, no matter how creepy or macabre it might be. You can write us those suggestions at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Facebook and we're on Twitter at Missed in History. And if you want to learn a little bit more about people like the Benders, we do have an article called How Serial Killers Work. You can search for that on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.